even in areas that Trump thinks important, international reputation, for example, and despite what he says, the U.S. is, in the eyes of the world, is in the grip of an untrustworthy leader. So what do we need to learn from what Trump does well? How does he appeal to wealthy corporate donors and the rural poor? How does he appeal to the vastly undereducated, yet some of the quite well-educated? How does he turn solid democratic states red, some bright red like Iowa? What are his talents? What are his superpowers? What can those people possessed of more morally upright policies, what can we learn from the way he's engaged voters? When we dismiss him as an ignorant buffoon, which is mostly true, as I'm sure you can tell from my discussion of him, and his followers are as misguided, unread, unwashed people, we miss a chance to understand rationally what happened, what is happening. If we do that, we miss a chance to perhaps affect thoughtful change. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. All right, and welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. It's me, Paul Gibbons, your host once again. For today's episode, I had recorded an interview with an ed tech entrepreneur, but there were technical troubles, and the release of that episode is sadly on hold. I won't out the culprits yet, but I'm pretty upset that I might have wasted an hour of this executive's time. I'm jumping in today to fill the gap. Coming up in very soon, I have an episode with Lenore Skenazi, who runs a website called Free Range Kids. The question she asks is, are we overprotecting our kids, penning them up inside scheduled events and playdates, and thus ruining their childhoods? Before jumping in today, this is the one-minute pitch. If you like the podcast, hit that subscribe button. Follow us on Facebook at Think Bigger, Think Better. Chip in on Patreon. Follow me on Twitter. Or sign up for book and podcast releases at paulgivens.net. If you review the podcast on iTunes and let me know, I will send you a free book from one of my guests. Just remember to email me once you do so. So today's title is Trump CEO, a leadership expert's perspective and a report card. So I'm going to talk about Trump, but I'm not going to talk too much about Trump policies, but more about his leadership. How? From the perspective of a leadership scholar and former CEO of a leadership consulting firm, that's me, are his leadership skills. How do those measure up? And I think the risk I'm taking here is this is going to alienate almost everyone. The left is going to object that anything I say about Trump, which is positive and balanced, I won't be critical enough. And the right will hate on my criticism of him, which is substantial, as you'll see. This by itself is a very interesting sociological phenomenon. One of the errors in thinking that psychologists, especially CBT, cognitive behavioral therapists, work with is globalizing. What do I mean by that? Globalizers, referring to thinking patterns, ignore data and specifics. Something is either all bad or it's all good. Someone, in this case Trump, is either all bad and evil to the core, and God forbid you should say anything good about him, or the contrary... With Trumpsters, he's so good that criticism bounces off him like Teflon. 
And both sides make this mistake. It isn't just that such and such a Trump policy is misguided. It's that everything about Trump is despicable. That's a caricature of the left's view. We don't deal in specifics. We deal in global generalizations that are really unhelpful for making change. And Trumpsters will brook no criticism of them at all, even if you, say, gave them abstractly a thinking problem such as this. Person A bragged about grabbing women's genitalia and has been accused of predatory behavior by more than a dozen women, is known to sleep with porn stars, and according to espionage reports, engages in water sports with Rustin prostitutes. Are they fit for public office? Now, I would bet a large amount of money if you met an evangelical on the street and they couldn't identify that you were asking about Trump from this, that they would find such behaviors, even accusations of such behaviors, disqualifying. But yet we certainly accept that all of this has become part of what we accept as the new normal. And it's a sad thing. And I'm a business person. I mean, I've been in business for 35 years uh, before I set out on this public intellectual jaunt. And including in my 35 years or the time on the hormonally overcharged Wall Street trading environment where nobody, and I can tell you nobody at any level in any corporation who was caught on tape saying that when you were famous, you could get away with uninvited sexual advances and groping would last a nanosecond in any corporate environment. You'd be done. Chairman, CEO, whatever, you'd be out. Many senior guys, we are discovering, in fact, act that way. And one of the great gifts of the Me Too movement is we're finding out that something that I thought was done with, you know, I thought sexual discrimination, sexual abuse, well, maybe not discrimination so much as sexual abuse. Most of that stuff had, you know, fallen away in the days of Mad Men, in the days when I was an investment banker in the 1980s, and almost anything goes. Those are long behind us, and we're finding out today in this century that they're not only not behind us, they're maybe much worse than we ever thought they were. So that's that, but bragging about it says so much about insecurity, sexual insecurity, in fact, and how broadly the person who would discuss women in that way thinks about women as principally things to be groped. And, you know, again, can't be overstated. We live in very strange times when this is seemingly the new normal. So I'm going to talk about leadership, and I'm not going to talk very much about policy, at least not at the beginning. One of the questions that leadership theorists like to discuss is whether you can be an effective leader and be morally, rationally, spiritually bankrupt. Like, question, was Hitler a an effective leader? I don't want to say good leader because that carries with it some moral connotation. Was he an effective leader? And the answer was incredibly so. In 1919, he was uneducated and careerless, without connections, without money. But by 1933, 14 years later, he was Chancellor of West Germany. And from there, until 1944, 1945, he looked completely unstoppable. Germany's economic and military growth was amazing under his leadership. Had it not been for the strategic disaster of invading Russia, it's hard to say how far the war would have progressed, whether Britain could have held him off. If all of those Russian resources, which died in the cold Russian winter, had instead been marshaled towards the takeover of Great Britain or just in consolidating his military gains, well, might have been, might have been a different outcome. But Hitler, uh, uh, like Trump, disregards expert views, and he disregarded the views of his generals who said this is a terribly bad idea, and thankfully in this case, because our world would be uncomfortably different uh, had that gone, had he listened to perhaps his experts. So 
we're people curious about leadership. Some of us are scholars, some of us are academicians, or some of us are just leaders, leaders in communities, leaders in business. And we ought to wonder what makes a good leader, and we ought to wonder what's Trump doing right. Many on the left treat Trump as an aberration. It's a momentary loss of sanity. We'll wake up in 2020 and we'll quickly forget this. Or they blame whoever on the left. They blame Hillary, or they blame Bernie, or they blame Russians, or they blame WikiLeaks, or they blame fake news. The refusal to acknowledge Trump's strengths, I think, is a huge error. To uncover how he secured the nomination against 13 much more highly qualified candidates going from last place to first place in just a few months, and how he overcame scandal after scandal, dismissing war heroes, fighting with families who lost a child in a war, branding immigrants rapists, denying that a Latino judge could be objective because of his background. He got 60 million votes. So let that sink in. He got 60 million votes. And the focus in the left-wing press on Trump is, I think, ridiculous, because we really need rather to think about the 60 million people who voted for him. Now, it's a really seductive trap to think that there are 60 million morally bankrupt morons in the United States, and that explains it all. And eventually, we'll tip the scales back, and the 63 million who voted for Hillary Clinton, somehow we'll elect someone else. But even if we were to get rid of Trump tomorrow, impeachment or early demise or you know, resignation or whatever might happen, even if he were to disappear tomorrow, we still left with those 60 million people who found his presidency an attractive prospect. And they'd be looking around for someone similar. So I think the focus on tra- Trump is really unhelpful. And, you know, uh, when I do listen to cable news in the car, I certainly don't listen to it at home, but sometimes I listen to it in the car. I find discussions of Trump uh, tedious. You know, I wish we'd get on with discussing policies, but he sucks up so much media oxygen. It's very difficult to discuss the things that I think are far more important than matters of his character. I mean, his character matters, but is it as important? as policy discussions. I mean, he's going to be there, you know, if you're a betting person, he'll probably be there until 2020. So, you know, we need to get to work. And I don't know, the, I, as I said, the focus on Trump as a, as a person, his character is unhelpful. I think we need to get back to policies. And if, like me, you think Trump policies are the greatest th- threat to global prosperity, and everyone from the right, by the way, has just clicked stop on this podcast. But if it like me, you think Trump policies are the greatest threat to global prosperity and threat to the values that have been cherished for more than a century, it's the 60 million people that matter, not Trump himself. So let's get back to leadership. So I'll get to some policy choices later. What results is Trump achieving? And I'll try to be balanced in my treatment of that. After all, the US economy is booming. But let's first talk about leadership. We need to be able to evaluate leadership independently of policy choices. Policy choices, to some extent, are given by values. We want to learn, how does Trump persuade? How does he excite followers? What does he do that might be emulated in service of good causes? And that's the real question. And there are a couple of ways I could have gone about this. One was to use a framework for leadership development, such as Kuz's and Posner's very good one. There's a link to that in the show notes if you're interested in evaluating your own leadership or having a friend do it for you. Uh, There's a link to that in the show notes. The other way is we could take a list of generic leadership skills and guesstimate where Trump would fall. That would be highly subjective, and I'd be doing it, as it were, from a distance. We could take a list of character traits. We could take authenticity, emotional intelligence, rapport, relationships, empathy, integrity, conscientiousness, honesty, and we could evaluate Trump against those domains. But then again, that would have me making very highly subjective judgments, so I'm going to skip that. 
I've rather decided rather than those to think about the role of the CEO and what CEOs are principally accountable for, what jobs they and they somewhat uniquely do. And I think the roles of a president are somewhat similar. I'd love to know what my friends who are experts in presidential theory and political theory would say about that. But I think there's a similarity. And we can, uh, once, if you do the thought experiment of thinking about what if Trump were a CEO, how would we be evaluating his leadership skills? And before I start, just one more thing. You might ask, well, what qualifies Paul Gibbons to discuss such things as leadership? Podcast listeners, you won't really know my background. So I was named one of two CEO super coaches by CEO Magazine about 10 years ago. Uh, so that's one of the best two coaches in the country, which was then the United Kingdom. I'm ramped. Top 20 in the world as a culture change guru on several websites. You can look that up. I ran a leadership consulting firm for a decade. I had 50 leadership coaches and consultants running around doing leadership development. And we worked for the biggest and best companies in the world. We worked for Shell. We worked for HSBC Bank. Uh, we've worked since for Microsoft. We've worked for Zappos since. And I've been broadly around the C-suite as an advisor to chief executives and their teams for about two decades. So I'm pretty amply qualified as a business CEO, analyst, evaluator, and as a leadership sort of expert. Well, I hope you agree. So let's see what I think here. So what are the main jobs of the CEO? I think I've got a list of four. So the first one is the CEO's pick the team that surrounds them. There's very little in a business a CEO can do just by themselves. They don't have the expertise, the breadth of expertise, and the depth of expertise. And they don't, frankly don't have the time in a complex organization. So when I interviewed the CEO of a major drug company only a couple of years ago, one who'd grown a business from several hundred million to a $21 billion business during his tenure, he said that the first and most important task of a CEO is selecting their team. And most leadership people would agree with that. Selecting a team requires great skill and judgment. As a poor performer in your team, in finance or marketing, will hamstring that function for the entire tenure, and it could bring down the whole shooting match if they're not removed in time. A bad pick will accomplish very little and may actually do considerable harm. So you look at team selection maybe along three dimensions. Knowledge. So you'd want the head of the Department of Defense to know something about defense, and you'd want the Secretary of State to have detailed foreign policy knowledge. Knowledge is the first of the three. And the next two are skills. You'd want them to have generic leadership skills. And you'd want them to have the sort of character that we wish our leaders to have. Integrity, moral probity, honesty. So knowledge, skills, and character are the three things that you'd want in your leadership choices. Well, 50 people have been fired or resigned from the Trump administration since January 2017. That's 21 months from today, the date of this broadcast. That's a record, of course, goes without saying. That's a, that's a record. Uh, it's the highest turnover. Many have been fired or resigned under a cloud. So the uh, EPA administrator, Pruitt, so many, many ethical challenges. Porter was accused of physically abusing two women. Flynn has pleaded guilty to multiple offenses. Cohen, the Trump lawyer, has pleaded guilty and implicated Trump in saying he was directed by Trump to pay off porn stars, something that Trump initially denied, and then he said he found out about the payoffs afterwards. So again, an interesting twisting of the truth. There's a good guy, which you'll remember, Scaramucci, a very entertaining fellow who was fired. Not entirely sure why, but he is obscene 
conversation with uh, I swear more than anybody I know, but I think if I were interviewing by a journalist for the Atlantic and I was about to be communications director at the White House, I think I might have buttoned it up for that one phone call, but he wasn't able to do that. And so Scaramouche last did 10 days. Bannon left somewhat under a cloud, you could say. Gorka, who was associated with neo-Nazi ideologies, that's not why I left. I'd probably be welcome if he was in the White House, if, he, if that were the only criticism. And Tom Price, the Health and Human Services Secretary, used hundreds of thousands of private air, uh, dollars of private airplanes for personal use. And uh, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development spent 30K of public money on a dining set. And it goes on and on and on. And there are 50 examples, not all of which are the same. That's quite an extraordinary number of bad picks. Now, all of this turnover, almost all of his people are handpicked by Trump. And he's, you know, famously impulsive guy. If he likes you, he likes you. He doesn't like you, he doesn't like you. He makes snap judgments. And so one of the things is his impulsivity is certainly one of the things that getting in his way. Good CEOs don't do that, though. They know that one bad pick is destructive. They take responsibility for their picks. So in other words, when I ran a company, if I hired someone and through insufficient due diligence or being a poor judge of character and skills, I hired someone who was useless or harmful to the company. It was my bad. That ethic, unethical or incompetent person's failure is really on me if I pick a poor team member. It reflects on my judgment. You don't really never hear that from Trump, and I don't think you ever will. You know, these people turn into bad. I don't know what he thinks privately about all of these people who have been so disappointing and so ethically challenged. But certainly we never hear him say, you know, it's my bad and I'm going to take more care about who we pick people or I'm going to pick people who are more experts in their field. That's not something you hear from him. Many of these people are also stunningly unqualified from the job. A little bit like asking my dentist to fix my car. There are certainly accusations of cronyism. Uh, Jared Kushner's a very attractive young man, dresses very well, but he's obviously not qualified to broker a piece in one of the most inflamed regions on the planet. And since Kushner has been in that chair, the situation has worsened rather than improved. I can't hold him directly responsible for that. It was bad to begin with, and it's not clear that to me, but he's certainly not made it better. And we're cert not, certainly not any closer to resolving any of our big problems in Syria or Israel-Palestine or elsewhere in the Middle East. And Kushner isn't really obviously skilled at anything. As one of my friends replied when I asked what she was good at, she joked with me and she said, well, I inherit very skillfully. And I think that's one of the things that you could certainly say about Kushner is he's a very skillful inheritor, not obviously skilled at too much else. As a leader, you want the team to work as a team to challenge your thinking. And uh, those are the two, I guess, most important other aspects of this. So you want your team members to play nicely together. And that's never been the case in the Trump White House. And they also want them to challenge your thinking. And that is something that Trump famously does not like. So he fires people who disagree with him. And three incredibly competent people, Cohn, McMaster, and Tillerson, have been fired, so they say, simply because they disagreed with Trump. He's unable to brook in his inner circle people who will challenge his thinking. And so as a leadership expert, this is worse than any corporation I've ever worked for, any corporation I've ever heard of. And I'm a former options trader way back in the day. I would buy as many puts as I could get my hand on, on a company with this kind of dysfunction at the top. I'll leave you to judge that for yourself. Job number two of a leader is to set vision and strategy. When we teach leading change at business schools, we encourage leaders who want to drive 
difficult change through their business to paint a picture of an unacceptable status quo. This business is deep in the shit. And if we don't do what I'm recommending we do, it's going to stay that way. What some people call a burning platform. In my writings, my book on change, Science of Organizational Change, I say why this is daft advice. However, despite the fact that I think it's daft advice, it's a very orthodox stance in the leadership and change world. You paint the status quo as dysfunctional and dystopian, and you use that burning platform to emotionally gird people for the change that you have in mind. So Trump is a genius at this. He successfully painted a dystopian picture of the United States. It's under siege from immigrants and terrorists. It's disrespected by foreign leaders. The U.S. has never been more disrespected than right at this moment, right now in time, 20 months into his presidency. However, in his view, when he was running, it was disrespected then by foreign leaders. It's the victim of terrible trade deals and incompetent negotiations in the past, and the country is run by despotic elites. Um, The rhetoric is one of blame. Immigrants, other countries, opposition parties, very much the same sort of rhetoric of blame that Hitler used in the 1920s with the, the names changed to protect the innocents rather than Jews today. We have Mexicans and we have refugees. So the, the names have changed, but the rhetoric of blaming other people for your trouble is a very, very comfortable one. And agree with Trump or not, there's a bedrock of consistency to his vision for the future. So he's painted this dystopian picture and then he has, of course, his vision for the future, which is America first or make America great again, whichever you like. And so he's a unilateralist on trade and diplomacy rather than a multilateralist. He doesn't like global agreements. He's pro-deregulation, perhaps more so than any president in history. He's pro-defense spending. He's going to set records for defense spending increases. He's anti-diplomacy, sort of my way or the highway with him. He's anti-environment, again, more so than any president in history. He's anti-immigration, again, so than more than any history in president in history, and he's anti-human rights, more so than any other president in history, for example, LGBT rights. So there's an incredible consistency to Trump's vision. Now, one might disagree with that. I disagree with all of it. But the strength and consistency of his vision endears him to many people. His approval rating is currently 35%, which is you know pretty abysmally low, something like that. But that's a third of the country. And I think 75% of Republican voters view Trump favorably. Having said that, there's a consistency of his vision. It's not always been the case. Trump in the past has been pro-abortion. He's been pro-universal health care. He's been anti-war in the past. But for now, his vision is consistently and extremely right-wing, to just use the bluntest of terms. And so, you know, you've got to, in some senses or another, applaud the consistency of the America First and the Make America Great Against vision, even though, if, like me, you disagree with every aspect of it. Now, what happens after you paint a vision of the future as a CEO is you develop a strategy, and the strategy is how you get there, how the vision gets done. Well, sometimes Trump is very pragmatic, but he's mostly very inconsistent. He's famously mercurial and changes his mind from week to week, from day to day to hour to hour, He changes his mind on the details. So he's changed his mind on guns. He's changed his mind on dreamers. He's changed his mind on NATO. He's changed his mind on China. He's changed his mind on Syria. He's changed his mind on healthcare. And he does so seemingly at a a whim. So it's very hard to execute strategy when the vision from the top is moving around quite so quickly once you get into the detail. 
So rather than burning NAFTA down, now we're working on renegotiating it. Even voiced willingness to renegotiate the Paris Accord. Dreamers are caught in the pinball machine of his vacillations on immigration. Strategy, unlike the vision piece above, is like chess. It requires thought and planning and coherent, aligned execution. What is the sequence of moves that will get things done? Which levers do I pull? Which obstacles do I remove? How do I anticipate the opponent's moves, say, with China? So job two, setting vision and strategy, I'd have to say he is a genius at painting, I think, an inaccurate dystopian picture of the United States. Really a a genius at painting a vision of the future, which I completely disagree with. But yet there's a remarkable consistency and it appeals very consistently to, let's call it 35, 40% of the American electorate. And he's very poor at execution on how vision gets done. And this next job three of the CEO is once you set a strategy and you have a plan for getting things done, is you go ahead and lead the execution of it, implementing strategy. You could call job three of the CEO. And a great CEO knows how to get his organization, his team, and the you know hundreds or so people who are in the Trump orbit, senior people in the Trump orbit, to align with his strategy so that it gets done. It's highly political endeavor in business organizations. It's highly political. It involves engaging stakeholders and motivating people, not just to approve of what you say, but actually take uncomfortable actions in service of the vision, do some things that are sometimes quite difficult. One bank CEO friend confided that he found himself with considerably less power as a CEO than he had imagined before taking the top job. In government in the United States and elsewhere in the Western democracies, we have an artfully constructed system of checks and balances so that one part of the political system does not have too much power. And that's a good thing. That concentration of power was seen as something which might lead to tyranny. And that's good. But to Trump supporters and to Trump, that looks like Washington bureaucracy. The checks and balances and the checks on Trump power are seen as obstacles to realization of the Trump vision. But the real politic of getting things done in the United States requires alignment of the political system. And I think it's fair to say that Trump is fairly inept. Things you can do by fiat, by executive orders, well, Trump tends to get those done. Things that require cooperation, legislation, well, he's routinely failed. I'll talk about the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and Trump's replacement for that a bit later. He campaigned on getting rid of it, but what to replace it with is a question of detail and is a much harder question. And as you well know, it's much easier to be against something than to innovatively, creatively, thoughtfully, and planfully design a replacement. It's a question of detail. It's a question of policy. It's a question of compromise. It's a question of working with stakeholders, the healthcare system, the states, the providers, the insurance, and all of that. I think it's fair to say that Trump is fairly inept at. Trump has boasted that he's signed more legislation, so the things that he can get done without the legislative system, and thus achieving his policy goals than anyone since FDR. Well, that's, first of all, a falsehood. Truman signed 55, and Trump about half that, 28. So it's not only untrue. Presidents also sign a lot of legislation that's decorative or symbolic or housekeeping or whatever. Trump had to wait until a year into his term, December 2017, for his first legislative accomplishment, his tax bill, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. By contrast, Obama signed in his first 90 days an $800 billion stimulus with legislative help, the Fair Pay Act with legislative help, and children's health insurance expansion 
in 90 days. So he got quite a lot more done within the system. Despite quite similar, you know, Obama had the Senate and the House and Trump both has the Senate and the House. But I think, you know, it's fair to conclude that Obama is considerably better at executing than in the legislative system and the political system than is Trump. Below the executive level, below the legislative level, Trump can claim to be the deregulator in chief. Most of those changes I've talked about are stroke of the pen, which leaves a lot of work to be done at the legislative and departmental levels. Nevertheless, under Trump, 67 environmental protections have disappeared with a stroke of a pen. And this kind of deregulatory frenzy has been echoed in transportation in the Department of the Interior and Department of Education. We've repealed the Clean Power Plan, whose clean air protections, according to health officials' research, prevented 90,000 asthma attacks, 1,700 heart attacks, 3,600 premature deaths. Repealing the Clean Power Plan will save, particularly the coal industry, $33 billion, but we ask ourselves at what costs and if there weren't cleverer 21st century replacements for coal, which is a 19th century fuel. Finally, the fourth job of a CEO, and this is the thing that might be the most contentious, is they have to be an ethical steward. So the CEO sets the ethical tone for the company. The fish, as I say in one of my books, rots from the head. Though nothing is proven, 15 women have accused Trump of a sexual assault or harassment, including three have accused him of rape. Naturally, these are hotly denied, despite a recording of him bragging about those behaviors. Numerous other women have claimed, again, indignantly denied by Trump, that they had consensual relationships with him while he was married. That has now shown to be the case, even though they were vigorously designed at the time. In a corporation, a single accusation of this nature would be the end of your career. He survived getting on for 20 of those. Conflict of interest is even harder to prove than sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct turns into a he said, said she said affair. But conflict of interest is slippery, more slippery still. The Trump businesses have benefited incredibly from the Trump presidency. Now, you could call that coincidence or you could call that artful design. The most visible, but maybe the most minor, possibly only hundreds of millions of dollars of extra revenue, are revenues at Trump International Hotel in Washington and Mar-a-Lago. Of greater concern might be Trump company debt, which is close to $2 billion, and whether this might provide leverage from hostile actors overseas. Whether his, that's pure speculation though, because we don't know for a fact whether that's true or not. We do not have $2 billion in debt. We don't know whether that's used as or could be used as leverage against him. Whether Trump's business interests might substantially affect his political judgment and decision-making is, again, it's speculative. And where such speculations land depends on whether you proceed from the assumption that Trump is fundamentally decent or fundamentally dishonest. There was a tradition of presidents giving up their businesses, putting them in a blind trust. He has issued that. And that is perhaps the source of these multiple crippling potential, at least potential, conflicts of interest. Finally, we need to talk a little bit about honesty. A CEO who makes false statements would be made to go instantly. When fact checkers on all sides fact check Trump, they find he lies 10 to 20 times more than other public figures. Sometimes he lies many times a day, and sometimes he lies many times in a single tweet. His most recent funny, not so funny lie has to do with arithmetic. 
3,000 or, or so people died in Puerto Rico as a result of 2017's hurricanes. That body count is a scientific research study and is pure arithmetic. Trump claims it was a dozen. It's a fascinating thing to watch him squirm. It really is. As you know, the facts mean countable things are the most facty of facts, aren't they? A chair has three legs. There are 17 people in my children, my child's freshman high school English class. You know, those countable things are things that, you know, I think we ought not to be arguing about. But here we are. We are arguing about how many people died in Puerto Rico. And uh, that's an extraordinary thing. And then sometimes uh, Trump says things such as he has tapes of his conversation with James Comey, the FBI director, and a year has passed and he's not produced them. And there have been a deluge of things like that, which you said. And the press can't keep literally asking every day, where are the Comey tapes? There have been 365 instances of that since it's about a year since he declared that he had tapes that would exonerate him. We also wonder where is the evidence of voter fraud that he claimed. He went looking, he founded a commission, they found none, and it was disbanded. And so it often seems that Trump isn't deliberately lying. Like, if you lie deliberately, you know the truth, and you say otherwise. It's that he really doesn't care whether he says is something which might be disproved an hour later. These so-called post-truth politics, where the truth of a statement is unrelated to or less important than the impact of a statement. So what are we learning about leadership from all of this? Well, leadership is often associated with performances, the visible onstage part of leadership. That includes business leaders, conference calls with analysts, town hall meetings with the company. And we think of people who excel at such things as being very leaderly. We often associate speaking up, holding the floor as a leadership skill. And partly it is. But listening, paying attention to surroundings, taking perspectives are equally important. We don't see much evidence of that in the Trump presidency. And I've often in my leadership programs, and this is, I think, an error that I will stop making, is emphasize the vision piece. But I wonder if I've done that far too much. Sure, you know, charisma, engagement, vision, emotional excitement, they're a great part of the puzzle, the leadership puzzle. But I'm and I'm not sure you can get anything done as a leader without some of that. But I'm reminded of a conversation with Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin. She was a classmate of mine in high school. She's a bit younger, who said, it's more important to be a workhorse than a show horse. We really do not value or encourage the people who make things happen behind the scenes, the workhorses. That isn't in our conception of leadership, isn't as important as the showmanship, the show horse aspect. And I'm not sure that's a constructive or a helpful way to think about things. Charisma may be necessary, but it isn't sufficient and not by a long ways. And so I'm reconsidering from my point of view, how much emphasis I put on the vision piece relative to other pieces of the leadership puzzle in programs I lead and in the coaching I do with leaders. So now I'm gonna change gear just a little bit and talk about results. So there's a lot to say. We're 20 months into Trump's presidency, but what are the facts? What grades would we give him for what he's achieved? Well, let's talk first about money. In the domain of finance, Trump's team released a budget early in 2018 that projected the deficit rising from $600 billion, almost under Obama, to almost $1 trillion in 2020. That's a Trump team 
release of an increase in deficit from $600 billion to nearly a trillion dollars. This projection assumes very, very robust economic growth and that they're going to be able to pass $3 trillion in cuts to Medicare and social problems. Let me say that again. $3 trillion in cuts to Medicare and other social problems. And then they'll meet the Trump budget objective, which is a deficit of a trillion dollars by 2020. Other economists are more conservative and project a deficit of $1.2 trillion by 2020. Should growth slow down or not meet Trump's lofty expectations, or you not be able to achieve the cuts to programs for the poor and the old, well, the deficit would be considerably higher. So I ask you, is the US balance sheet heading in the right direction? And I think you might agree with me that if deficit spending is an important thing to you, as it is to many people on the right of the center, that you'd probably have to give the Trump presidency a D plus for that. But let's talk about something positive, economic growth. Under Trump, unemployment's fallen from about 4.7% to about 3.9%. So that's just under a percentage point. Now, under Obama, from 2009 to 2016, unemployment fell from 9.3% to 4.7%, so decline of 4.6%. The economy added 11 million jobs during the Obama tenure, the longest period of job growth in history, the longest period of job growth in U.S. history, 11 million jobs. And under Trump, economic growth is solid. It's moderate at about 2.3% a year in 2017, whereas the Obama years growth averaged 1.9%. So slightly better, 2.3% versus 1.9% under Trump. Nothing as dramatic if you listen to Trump or some of his supporters. It certainly doesn't seem like we've gone from a stalled economy to an overheated economy, rather economy that was moderately warm to an economy that's moderately warmer. How much credit can Trump take for the 2017 economy? Almost none. After Obama's 31 quarters of consecutive growth, Trump certainly had a following wind. However, in 2018, his policies will begin to bite And the growth was a moderate 2.1% economic growth in the first quarter. And in the second quarter of 2018, it picked up strongly to 4.1%. It isn't clear how much of anything Trump has to do with all of this, but facts are facts. And it would be churlish with this sort of economic growth to give Trump anything less than a B plus for how quickly and how fast the economy is growing under him. One cautionary note, though, the trade war with China has accelerated in recent days, and it looks like it's going to accelerate considerably more as China retaliates and the U.S. retaliates against the China retaliation and Chinese retaliate against the U.S. retaliation against the Chinese retaliation, et cetera, et cetera. We're in a tit-for-tat phase. Economists project that the trade wars will clobber U.S. growth in the range from 0.2% to 1%, something like almost, perhaps, as much as 1% a year. And as you can tell from the numbers I've shared with you, we don't really have that to play with. The economy really isn't robust enough to take those kind of hits, but the trade wars were certainly going to slow us down, and we're just going to have to wait and see how far down that economic abyss the trade wars take us. But nevertheless, we can say economic growth, Trump gets a B plus. Let's talk about health. Trump care will allow insurance companies to offer short-term and limited benefit plans. So insurance premiums might drop because they're offering fewer benefits. However, that will mean sicker people who need more comprehensive plans are going to be concentrated in higher risk pools and their premiums will go up. The cost of an average policy, 
however much that will go up as a matter for the actuaries, but whether insurance companies ought to be able to sell stripped down plans is a moral question. The Affordable Care Act lists essential health benefits. Listen to these and see if you think they should be essential. Labs, mental health, drugs, addiction, chronic health management. I say that again. Labs, lab testing, are essential health benefits. Mental health benefits, depression, as if you listen to one of my early podcasts, affects one in five Americans, roughly. Prescription drugs, addiction treatment, and chronic health management. Those are essential under the Affordable Care Act, and insurance companies had to provide them in their core coverage. It was a low bar, but that bar has just been dropped. And one healthcare CFO opined on this. She said, you know, she said, if you have a $10,000 deductible, that's self-pay in my mind. People think they have insurance and they come to our healthcare facility. We have to educate them and say, you need to understand, you don't really have insurance. So whether allowing insurance companies to sell stripped down plans and plans with super high deductible that effectively leave people uninsured or financially crippled if they grow unhealthy is certainly morally questionable. Uh, Trump has to be able to repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, but what he's done is kill it by a thousand cuts. He's not replaced it. And as you'd expect, healthcare outcomes are falling and costs are rising under Trump. Trump care moves the United States further towards a tiered system, excellent health care for the very well off, skimpy health care and expensive health care for the middle classes, and bare bones or nothing for the very poorest Americans. And so whether health care should be rationed according to wealth, again, is a moral question. It certainly is rationed according to wealth at the moment, and whether we can tolerate that in a civilized society is a good question. In truth, nothing has changed in the past 20 months in healthcare, despite Trump's grandiose campaign trail promises. Citizen health looks imperiled by the proposed changes, by the lowering of the bar on insurance, but we shall have to see. Opioid addiction is not something that you can lay at Trump's door, but if he's unable or unwilling to do something about that, it certainly is something that we may be able to lay at his door by 2020. So in healthcare, I think we have to give him a D. Things are getting worse, not better, as the existing system is dismantled and nothing sensible is put in place to replace it. Education. In keeping with the Trump philosophy, regulations on educational institutions and educational funding have been rolled back. Trump University, days after Trump was elected, settled fraud claims against it in December 2016. Schools with poor reviews have more time to appeal against them. Students who borrow money to attend fraudulent schools, such as proliferated under the Bush administration, they now have fewer protections. So students who are screwed by for-profit financial institutions who have borrowed money and then thrown that money away because they've not been able to obtain, as promised, a degree or a certificate now have fewer protections. Federal funding for education programs has been slashed by $9 billion. I don't know why you'd look there to cut funds. You know, the United States is ranked, I think, 31st in the world in math and science education right now. You really want to run a technocratic economy being 31st in the world in math and science? I don't really think so. Charter and voucher schools, which dragged Michigan schools into the dumpster are now being encouraged through a variety of means, even though the research on charter school performance across the United States shows mixed results. It is not necessarily the case that charter schools produce 
superior educational outcomes. What is clear is that students are no better off under Trump and fly-by-night for-profit colleges such as Trump U, which got out of jail after he was elected, have been given a legal pass. So under Trump, I have to say, it looks to me like very much like education is heading for worse and not better, and I don't think we can give him any better than a D-plus for that. And if you thought those were harsh, really hear what I have to say about the environment. Again, in keeping with Trump philosophy, legislative repeal is the key policy tool. Beginning with the appointment of Scott Pruitt to run the EPA, he's now gone under a massive ethical cloud. We've had a binge of regulations repealed, 67 environmental regulations repealed. You want to listen to that and think whether, as a citizen, that you think the repeal of 67 environmental legislation to protect the air and the water that we breathe and some of our biodiversity, whether these are good things. I don't think they are. The deregulation binge also means the Paris Accord's gone. Coal can now be included in clean fuel schemes. Coal plants have been deregulated. Why the United States is investing so much in an 18th and 19th century fuel in the 21st century, I do not understand. But you have to ask yourself the question, are our air and water any cleaner? The largest environmental deregulations ever in the history of the United States on doing the work that began to be done in the Nixon administration in the 1960s and 1970s. Is our air and water any cleaner? Is our environmental future any more secure? And there's no grade lower than an F. Uh, there's no F minus, but if there were, it would certainly be an F minus. So now let's talk about a Trump red meat issue, security. Travel bans, the wall, dreamers, immigrants, domestic terrorism. He won hands down with people for whom this was their biggest concern. He campaigned successfully on fears of domestic terrorism caused by immigrants from predominantly Muslim countries. He successfully pushed through a travel ban from seven countries. The other threat, of course, comes from immigrants causing the U.S. southern border who are bad hombres no racism there, or rapists, uh, again, no racism at all. In terms of probabilities, it's slightly more likely that you'll be killed by lightning than you'll be killed by an immigrant. Recently, Trump has clamped down on refugees entering the United States, but this is perhaps for a variety of bad reasons. The chance of being killed by a refugee is about one in 50 million historically. That's one in 50 million. It's less likely by a factor of five than being killed by a shark. The chance of being killed by an illegal immigrant is even smaller. It's about one in 140 million or perhaps two people a year. In fact, right-wing homegrown terrorism is a much greater threat. They caused approximately 10 deaths a year, and that is on the rise with a big surge in 2017, which is interesting because they now have their boy in the White House. He famously called the marching neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. They're good people. Sure they are. If you care about security, the safety of your families and communities, the best place to look would be gun violence. In Las Vegas, 58 people were killed in a massacre. That is the total number of annual gun deaths across the whole UK. That one killing is a whole year in a country with a population of 60 million. So get that. Chicago has that many gun deaths in a weekend. London is about three times the size of Chicago with a population of eight and a half million. It has about a dozen gun deaths a year. 
the UK also has inner cities and it has a diverse population, a lot, a lot of Muslims. It has mental illness, it has computer games, and it has poverty, all the causes of gun crime that America has. It just has no guns. And as a result, the gun deaths in the United States are 160 times that of the United Kingdom. Gun deaths are up under Trump. And despite regular mass shootings and lots of thoughts and prayers, legislation has, on balance, been relaxed over the last decade since Newtown's school shooting killed a bunch of kindergartners. I had the unenviable task of explaining to my then-kindergarten why six of his peers, uh, 21 of his peers from across the country, had been shot down in their schoolroom. How do you explain that to a kid, and how does that sort of not infect their psyche? I do not know. The number of kids killed by guns has, again, jumped in the United States. It was 732 last year. So this problem predates Trump. Of course, Obama, of course, made zero progress, something that he was deeply unhappy with. But it's worsening, and it certainly won't make any progress in a NRA-friendly Trump administration. And, and the interesting thing is, that, of course, we spend tremendous resources to combat domestic terrorism. But if you ask yourself, like the Center for Disease Control, how much money should we spend combating a disease that kills half a dozen people a year or a dozen people a year, the answer would be very little money indeed. We have bigger problems to solve. Domestic terrorism is a non-thing, a non-problem, again, on the scale of lightning and shark deaths and those kind of probabilities. And yet we devote a lot of resources, but a lot more political capital. And a lot of fear is sown in the United States to keep people, I don't know, on their guard against these baddies from Iran and Saudi Arabia. Well, they just don't exist and they just don't cause domestic violence on any scale at all, not since 9-11. One of the other things Trump campaigned upon was the U.S. reputation. At a rally in Alabama, President Trump said, I will tell you the world is starting to respect the United States again. Couldn't be more false because the opposite is true. Confidence in the U.S. president dropped from 64% to 22%. And the favorable view of the United States has fallen from 64% to 49%. So let's get this right. Confidence in the president has fallen from 64% under Obama to 22% under Trump. And people who view the U.S. favorably has dropped from 64% to 49%. So precisely the opposite of what Trump said. It's not entirely true in Russia, where in fact... 53% trust the president to do the right thing, whereas only 11% of Russians trusted Obama to do the right thing. Isn't that interesting? Most countries, the United States, President Dimly, so 10% uh, of the Swedes and 11% of the Germans and 14% of the French and 22% of the UK view the US president favorably. And that was a number that was in the 80s and 90s for Obama in amongst our closest allies, Sweden, Germany, France, and the UK. So not only is the world starting to respect the United States again, it's really quite the opposite. And that's a scary thing. So that's a review of the main jobs of a leader and an assessment, a report card, and hopefully a factual assessment of Trump's progress. I think the messages we need to listen to are, if all of this is true, what do his 60 million voters now think? Are we overemphasizing the show horse part of leadership, charisma and engagement in favor of the workhorse part, executing policy? Evaluating which policies is a matter of values, which policies someone pursues, terrorism or immigration versus social justice and equal rights, that's a right-left divide. But even in areas that Trump thinks important, international reputation, for example, and despite what he says, 
the U.S. is, in the eyes of the world, is in the grip of an untrustworthy leader. So what do we need to learn from what Trump does well? How does he appeal to wealthy corporate donors and the rural poor? How does he appeal to the vastly undereducated, yet some of the quite well-educated? How does he turn solid democratic states red, some bright red, red like Iowa? What are his talents? What are his superpowers? What can those people possessed of more morally upright policies, what can we learn from the way he's engaged voters? When we dismiss him as an ignorant buffoon, which is mostly true, as I'm sure you can tell from my discussion of him, and his followers are as misguided, unread, unwashed people, we miss a chance to understand rationally what happened, what is happening. If we do that, we miss a chance to perhaps affect thoughtful change. So thanks for listening to that, and thanks for listening to Think Bigger, Think Better. I'll wait just a second, and I will leave you with my thoughts on what's going on in the world of culture. Once again, thanks for listening. And uh, in this final segment, I do want to say I'm really, really pleased to be writing Truth Wars again. I had been pretty writer's blocked for most of this year. Some of the hot topics I've been researching include gluten and carbs and wheat, and I'll be looking for expert guests on those subjects while I'm researching them from the book. On the culture front, I've been enjoying the second season of Ozark tremendously. I haven't seen a great movie. We seem to be in a little bit of a desert at the moment since Three Billboards. And I've been listening to some sweet contemporary hip-hop music of Logic and Juice World. I know, that's a weird name. But great music and a new theme, I think, in contemporary hip-hop music. I like their stuff very much. Amazon has just dropped a bunch of cool books through the mailbox. I'm not reading much that's new, though. I'm reading The Thoughts of Isaiah Berlin and Hannah Arendt as I prepare to write a chapter on totalitarianism for Truth Wars. I've got a new sci-fi from Peter Hamilton, who's one of my faves, called Salvation. And I'm prepping for trips to Martha's Vineyard in Vegas this fall. One of those is to see a college friend get married for the first time. He is nearly 60, so that's going to be a fun time, and we'll be... uh, also partly a college reunion. Dare I say, it's nearly a 40-year college reunion. It's a frightening, frightening number. Of course, going to the vineyard involves trying to find a place in the vineyard that costs under 500 bucks a night. But hey, if you're going to hobnob with the elites in the deep state, well, it's going to cost. Remember to hit that subscribe button or like our Facebook page and join the discussions. If you feel like supporting Think Bigger, Think Better financially, head on over to Patreon and lob in a couple bucks an episode. Thank you once again for listening. Thanks for all your support. We are out. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books. Lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.